Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, it's Matt Browning. Welcome back to the show, Driven Entrepreneur. And man, we are here with just a legendary guest, um, a true legend of a man, uh, the co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton Hotels, which, I mean, talk about the most, probably the most popular hotel name in pop culture too, you know, made into a song. Everybody knows it. His name is uh, Horst Schulze. He established, you know, a whole new brand of excellence in the entire hotel industry, creating one of the most recognizable international brands. And it truly is. Um, and it still continues on today. Um, he's, to, in, in, in my estimation, one of, one of the top and, and most well-known hoteliers uh, really in the world. He still sits as the chairman CEO of Capella Hotel Group. Uh, as a leader of service in the world, he's the man responsible for bringing really a whole new vision to customer service and, and uh, as they said, gentlemen and ladies, serving gentlemen and ladies, having just a whole new echelon of service. Uh, I am so, so excited. He has multiple, multiple awards. You've seen him keynote speaking uh, all over for top companies on culture and customer service and leadership. Uh, so super blessed to have him today. Mr. Holtz Schulze, how are you, Hort? Hort. I'm, Hort. I'm, I'm fine. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm so happy to have you. So we were chatting just before we went to uh, start a recording. And, you know, I, I'd love to just jump right in with you. My, my biggest question is, just as we look at, you know, co-founding something like the Ritz-Carlton, you co-founded this, the investors who bought the existing brand Ritz-Carlton in 83, brought you in and you were the guy, um, I know there was a small team as well, but you were the, the guy that they wanted to run the hotel and really turn it into something. This has been, I mean, the first Ritz was in America in 1911, um, you know, Paris before that. And it had, I'd say, ups and downs, mostly downs with the brand. It had changed and pretty quickly. It just, there wasn't really much to it. But this company, they, they, they buy the name Ritz and the few existing pieces, and there's really not much to it. What's your, what's your mindset when, when they approach, did, did they approach you? Did you... Uh, were you looking for a job? Uh, were you looking to co-found a hotel? <laughs> uh, how, how did no. that come about in 83? No. Well, well I, I was working with Hyatt. I was in charge. I was a corporate vice president in charge of all the United States operations, food and beverage. So then they had two hotels in construction in Atlanta. They, they, they developed us, money people, and could not wanted to make one Holiday Inn and one Marriott. They could not come to agreement with Marriott and Holiday Inn about the contract. So somebody recommended them to them, you should form your own brand. And so, well, how are we going to do that? We don't, we don't run business. We are developers. You said, find somebody. And they, re in fact, recommended me. So they reached out to me. I had a friend who worked here in the area. So I connected. And they said, he's the guy. They kept on calling me. I had no interest to move. I had a great job with a wonderful company. But they told me that operationally, I can do what I want, which developed a dream in my mind, a vision. 
of creating the finest hotel company in the world. I started dreaming about that. And when they kept on talking to me, I finally left my golden handcuffs with Hyatt, moved <laughs> to Atlanta, moved to Atlanta to start this new hotel company with two hotels in construction in Atlanta. We didn't have a name. So we recommended to our developers that we should buy a hotel that has a name. We frankly had two options, a hotel de Mark Hopkins in, in, Los, in San Francisco, and we were offered the, the Ritz in Boston. We preferred the Mark Hopkins, was a better name at the time, because the Ritz in Boston was a dilapidated hotel, totally dilapidated. But uh, Intercontinental had an option under Mark Hopkins. They, took, they exercised the option, so we ended up with the Ritz in Boston. Great location. We thought bad name. <laughs> so, and, and this so, is what I find. This is what I find so fascinating is you know when yeah. today you know as we record this is 2019. So yeah. <laughs> a lot of years have passed by. Um, and as you think about Ritz Carlton today, you know it, it's it's yeah, the sure, yeah. song about the Ritz and it's you know high class and it's really. And in fact, I, I was born in 1979. Just to give some perspective, so. Yeah. In yeah, 1983. <laughs> you're doing this. I'm three years old. So my entire life, the only brand I've ever known about the Ritz Carlton is the top of the top shelf, five six star sure. uh, hotel experience. Sure. Yeah, sure. But you're coming into yeah. this with with a name that is almost like it's beaten down. You said dilapidated. Well, uh, understand the the, the the Ritz family. Mr. Ritz created the Ritz in Paris. He yes. created the Ritz in London and the Carlton houses in London. After he passed away, the family came here and started the Ritz Carlton Hotel Company. They created 11 hotels, which all of them bankrupted. And the only one left was dilapidated, that, that owns the name was the Ritz Carlton in Boston. So our owners finally bought that name. We closed the hotel for renovation. So the first Ritz Carlton in the new Ritz Carlton Hotel Company that opened was in Atlanta, and it was in January 1984. And it was done, I mean, very frankly, it was very simple. I had worked for the leaders in the world, uh, in the hotel business. The leaders in the world, in fact, were Hilton, Hilton International, uh, uh, Hyatt, Western, and Intercontinental. I know what they were doing, and rather than compete with them, I decided to move the brand just above them so that I would pull the upper market out of those brands into our new market, our new brand. So we opened the first hotel. And of course, all I had to do, the whole attitude of ours was the whole dream, the whole plan was once anybody enters our hotel, we will convince them to come back and recommend us. That was the whole attitude. And that was that's the how number we, one value. It was, that was when the number they come one in, value. they're going to come back and they're going to bring When they some. come in, once they come in, we show them that we are better, that we are cleaner, that we are friendlier, that we are more responsive, etc. All the things that constitute hospitality. Do it superior than anybody else. Do, and just make up your decision. We made, we made a decision. What are the 20 things that we have to do superior to our competition in order to be a superior brand. And by the way, Ritz-Carlton was not only a great hotel company, we were voted 
clearly best brand in the world. Voted best brand in the world as well. Yes. So did you have any, just going back initially, did you have any pushback on the name itself? Or was it at this point not that well known because it was only, you know, it had gone through bankruptcy and it wasn't large? Or did you have to push back and, and rebuild a, a name? Sure, you had, re, you had to rebuild a name. I mean, mind you, we were at the first hotel was in Atlanta. And the people said, what, what is Ritz Carlton? What, what's that? And I heard of it. <clears throat> so, of course, we established ourselves. We, we would have done it with any name. The, the objective was the same. The vision was, we will create the best brand in the world if that is called Ritz-Carlton or whatever. or uh, so. But Ritz-Carlton worked because we created, we got a hotel in Boston, which had in Boston a good name, even though it was, the, was dilapidated. And it was in a great location. So a little bit over a year later, we reopened the hotel uh, and it was became one of the leading hotels in Boston immediately. It, it- there, there was a building too, was it? I thought it was in Boston. It might have been somewhere else that you ended up having to convert to condominiums and turned into like the Ritz condos. Uh, yeah, that was, that was also Boston. That was, was it Boston the same, same building in Boston or was it? Yeah, yeah, same building, yeah. So did that start off as one of the first, the hotel you took over, but then eventually right. you, you said, hey, let's turn these into condos. Let's offload no, it. No, they, were, they were condos. They were condos, most of them. They were condos already. And we served them. And they had an Emirates Carlton too. They were very good condos connected to the hotel. Later, several years later, we went into that business to create in the hotels condos for sales that are fully served by the hotel. Yes. Oh, fascinating. Uh, was at this time, was there the concept of timeshare already in existence and how hotels no. are today? It, it, yes, the concept existed. We didn't want to go into that. So, but, uh, but sooner or later, we looked at it and said, okay, we don't have timeshare. We have hotels with fractional ownership. <laughs> <laughs> timeshare didn't sound good to us. No. So I never, never forget uh, introducing it to the press in New York and the breakfast that we had our fractional ownership. They said, wait a minute, this is timeshare. I said, no, 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 it's not. It's fractional ownership. Drastically different. (laughs) Yeah, but of course, we didn't sell very short. We sold minimum four weeks stays and so on. So it was a little different, but it was very successful. (laughs) So you really coined the the, the idea of fractional ownership because, I mean, I've certainly heard of that today. Wow, it's amazing. I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, just a, a side question that I found fascinating as I'm doing some of the research on, on the Ritz. Um, William Johnson was one of the, the co-founding, um, yeah. so he bought the trademark. He was, he was the owner. He was the owner. He was the developer and financial person and so on. So he's and, the developer. And, and he started. Absolutely. It would have never happened without him. Now, and this is what, what I found just kind of, I don't know, maybe a, a chuckle. And I'm curious if there was any insight into this. He was also one of the largest franchisees of the Waffle House. Yeah, now, when I he, think owned, of, yeah, he owned 150 Waffle Houses. <laughs> my gosh. So when I think of Waffle House, I think of, so I'm assuming he's going to be on the investment side. Because when I think of Waffle House, I don't think of um, five-star standard. I think of, you know, grab and go. It's very, it's the low quality, sure. very different. Uh, sure. Um, money for quality type thing. Did, was there any kind of a, an almost a, a values conflict at all? Or was he strictly uh, an investor businessman said, hey, I'm happy to invest in high end, low end, whatever it is. 
or did he have concepts that came from Waffle House running that maybe bled into the hotel side? No, he couldn't have cared less. It was a business, a business. However, he started with Waffle Houses. And consequently, when we, when we had guests in our office, we had very fancy offices, by the way, great ball, uh, meeting rooms and so on. When we had guests, I brought, in the beginning, I put China in. He said, we don't do that. We take the, the, the paper cup from Waffle House. That's how we start our money. We are proud of it. We're going to show it here, too. That's the only connection we had with Waffle House. We had Waffle House cups in our offices. That's the only connection. <laughs> so, Otherwise, so when the, the, you couldn't care less. You know? <laughs> so the international clients and guests come into the Ritz-Carlton headquarters, beautiful home, beautiful place, and they give the paper waffle cup. <laughs> Waffle yes, House cups. <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. But he always explained it. So it was kind of that makes me happy. Fun. It kind of feels like, you know, when you, yeah, for a long time, I, I, found, I found my first company at 22 in real estate. And for years, I had my first dollar, you know, framed up on the wall behind me that I got. Same a, thing. It's Sizzler Steakhouse. Same idea. Same idea. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. So walk me through, Hortz, a little bit about um, as you're, you're starting something new. Uh, there's a lot of people that are listening to this that are... In you know, and again, today it might be a little different, but I know there's there's patterns and principles that are really timeless as well. A lot of people that are in startup phases, entrepreneurial phases, and and have an idea. Did you always know? Did you always have a big vision of what you wanted to run something your way through all your time at Hyatt and other hotels, yeah. or yeah, did sure. you did that just first come into play when they said we want you to come in, and now you said I have yeah. a dream. No, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, we all have that. And when we work somewhere, we think I could do this better here and there. And when you present it, people dismiss it. Mm. We all have that to, to an extent. But of course, it was accelerated dramatically when I started thinking, starting my own hotel company, what would I do? And you start dreaming. And the dream was I could start, I could create the finest hotel company in the world. I know what the competition is doing, what the, <clears throat> I know what the industry is doing, and I know it can be done better. Where do so, you think that came from? Because the, the, you said that phrase twice, and I really love it. I want to latch on to it. What if I created the finest hotel, hotel company in the world? Did that come from somewhere? Was there a seed of an idea? Like, did you see something done poorly or something done excellently and thought, man, what if we did that? Or was it a parent influence? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I mind you, I'd, I'd worked for Hilton. I knew what they were doing. And I worked for Hyatt. I knew what they were doing. And of course, the concentration in those, those hotels, nothing wrong with that. Necessarily, the concentration is large conventions. That's the concentration. In concentration, and, and meaning that's where they focus for clientele. That's where they focus on. That's where the big money is to get large conventions, have very large hotel with large conventions. And, and it, it conflicted very clearly with the individual customers that wanted to have privacy. And as one guest said, I like to go to Four Seasons, Ritz Carlton, and so on. Now, later, that was later. But when I'm there, I'm pushed often into the corner by the people who are there with a beer can collector's convention. <laughs> and I have nothing against them. But I pay $1,000 a suite. I know they pay $190 a room. And I would like to be treated. When I go in the elevator, they push me in the corner. So there was this individual 
reaction before it's called now. But, but I mean, I saw that. So I knew there was a market that was looking for something a little more intimate, a little better. I still created large hotels, but very consciously with club levels and so on and so on, and, and more intimate and more attentive. I, I only responded to what the market had told me already. Such a such an interesting concept, you know, like when, when you think, because you paint that picture and I think about that guy in the back of the elevator and sometimes that's me, sometimes it's not me, right? Because yeah. I, I run lots of seminars <laughs> and conventions as well. Sure. So sometimes it's us taking over the hotel. But then there's times when I'm traveling that, that I, I do, I really would love to have that kind of uh, that privacy. Did you immediately know it was also an affluent group of people or did you think, hey, I just want to have the top shelf experience, but accessible to people? Or did you immediately think luxury also equals uh, top dollar? What was your, uh, yeah, your take it was on very, that? Well, it was, it was uh, when I analyzed what it would take to create a hotel, it was very clear that you needed a higher rate in order to afford delivering the services I wanted to deliver. That was very clear from day one. And I needed to be in every location. I, I knew in each location we would have to be the leader in average rate uh, per night and in occupancy. That was very clear. Otherwise, you could not afford delivering what we want delivery. I also had to make sure uh, the finishes were finer. The soap was, my soap that I bought was more expensive than the soap they bought in another hotel or the shampoo, etc., etc. Everything geared to a market who would understand that, who would understand the product at the same time and would be willing to pay for that reliable return. Mind you, I tried never to advertise luxury. I tried to advertise that we are the most reliable hotel product there is. You can count on us. You can trust us. I didn't want, because I knew many of my customers would be a middle to high business traveler. If they say, I stay in the best hotel, the company would say, why? And I want to give them the answer from the beginning because it's more reliable. I can count on them. So it's not luxury, it's more reliable. So we stuck to that and created a product that was more reliable, but in all cases, it's superior to what the, what, the, what the industry was doing. I want to be superior in friendliness, in reliability, in cleanliness, in responsiveness, and so on. So we. We created a process around that by, by selecting the right employees, aligning them to our company, truly aligning them. Aligning is a buzzword today, and it's not meaning with most people, but we truly aligned them to the organization and taught them and spent a lot of time and effort teaching people, et cetera. And, and consequently, very soon we're recognized. Uh, as, and then of course, we, frankly, I did many things for image building, for example, in the first hotel in Atlanta, we had tea in the afternoon with a piano player, Wedgwood China, and once a week, chamber music. And, and, and my, my, my assistant uh, asked me, chamber music, is that what you like? It has nothing to do with what I like. Because <laughs> we didn't make money, but we created an image around it at the same time that we are the finest in town. So you were marketing on like verbally, you're marketing the idea of reliable and you can trust us and you can count on us. 
but the nuance under the surface, the notes playing were also luxury, fine art, That's right. uh, and experience. Exactly, exactly. So they go to I wanted band. you to experience that. I wanted you to experience that, but I wanted you to feel totally feel comfortable to use it, even though you had to be responsible to reporting to your company. That's such such a such a smart thing. And I'm glad you, you brought up team and employees and, and values. I wanted to kind of pivot for a second and ask yeah. hiring practices when you're finding people early on and and even you know anytime over the years, because you've had decades, of course, of experience. Are are there any, I don't know, like magic ways that you would find the right team members, those stellar yeah. people that you knew from the yeah. beginning? And specifically Absolutely. Yeah, the question too is would you hire people first or talent skills and so forth would you find because you talked about teaching a lot and i wonder you know is it more important in your estimation to find the right person than teach them the skills or find someone qualified and share with them the culture if that makes sense oh let me share something with you that's a funny i remember reminded here something we, we we did a hotel with volkswagen in germany they were the owner next to the headquarters and so on and uh, I got to know the chairman at the time, who uh, is uh, the grandson of Ferdinand Porsche, and a great owner there and so on. But every time he was very involved, every time he wanted to talk to them. So one day be before we, we developed the hotel, we came close to opening, we said, we're going to start hiring now. And he said, I hope you, op you hire very qualified people. And I said, Dr. Piersch, that's not what we do. We hire talented people that care. We, are, we teach the qualification. He said, you cannot do that. You are here in Northern Germany. You're not in Bavaria. <laughs> <laughs> Northern Germany. So, yeah, so, the only thing that matters is qualifications. He, he was upset about that. And I said, trust us. You hired, you wanted us to run the hotel. So you have to, have to let me do what, I, what we do. Uh, after the hotel was open for eight, about eight months, he asked me, could you hire all the people that we hire for, for this? There were museums and so on. Could you hire all the people for us? Because we selected, we had created a selection point. We had, we had identified for every job category the profile needed. What is needed in that job? What talent is needed? What caring is needed? So we developed that and we hired again. So that even to hire a dishwasher, we interviewed 10 dishwashers before we hired one. Can you give average. me an example of a profile for a dishwasher? Just a, a well, few, just an idea of what, well, how I'll give you a, 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 a funny profile, one funny profile too, it's just, I don't know, I remember those things right now, was the doorman. What was the, is the profile for a great doorman? Now that there, there are many commonalities they have, but we analyzed the five best later, and we found the five best doormen all liked gardening. Really? Well, how about that? Yeah, how about that? Well, but we would have hired somebody who really likes to work in the, by, on the computer and make him a doorman, or vice versa. So we, we, we through a company outside help, a company linked to Passport Talent Plus, they helped us to profile each job category and hire against that profile, which was major success, major success. People were happy in their environment. Besides, of course, and that was a key, we didn't hire people to come to work for us. We hired people to join us in our dream. Come on. We didn't, 
You know, but look at what we do all. It's kind of immoral what we all do. We hire people to fulfill a certain job function. In our case, checking people in, cleaning rooms, cooking food. Wait a second. The chair in which you're sitting is fulfilling a function. The function has to be fulfilled, but the higher you're not to for the function, the higher to be part of us, to be part of a dream, to, to have a vision, to have a purpose with us. And then I let you fulfill a function in order to accomplish that purpose. And, and we were very strong about that. And we, the first day, the first day of work, we oriented you who you are, who we are. Here's who we are. Don't work for us. Join us. Here's what we think, what we feel. Here's what our dream is. We align you to our dream, to our purpose. Here's what our guest wants for us. So we align you to us as a company and to the guest. That's when you are aligned. Otherwise, you're not aligned. So you'd bring out, first and foremost, the dream, the vision, the motivational drive for you, for the company, what you guys are really doing, what you're about, why you're here. And I love that you're doing this in the 80s when, for all intents and purposes, so many other companies in the 80s are, you know, it's Wall Street's growing, it's greed, it's, hey, this is what, you know, we're selling this thing and get on or get out of the way. But you're taking an approach that, quite frankly, companies are just starting to wrap their minds around today in the last 10 years to say, this is our vision. Do you want to come on board? Yeah, I, I think, in fact, I think we helped dramatically with that as a company because we kept, became an example. We, we had a learning institute where every week people came to learn from us what we do, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds uh, over the years. And, and understanding, I mean, it, it, it's kind of, if you think about it, Aristotle 3,000 years ago uh, studied that and came to the conclusion that people, people in order to be fulfilled, needs pur- need purpose and belonging. So why wouldn't we give them a purpose <laughs> and, and allow them to belong? I mean, we know it for 3,000 years, it works. And a paycheck in so a business so, card. So that's what enough? we did. Here we are. Here's who we are. and and And... By the way, the first 55 Ritz Carlton's that opened or was, were taken over existing hotels, I did the orientation. I told them who we are. Here's who we are. Join me. And, and so and if that was Shanghai or Hawaii or Philadelphia I didn't, or, or Berlin, it didn't matter. I did the orientation. So you would personally go to the Absolutely. new hotels? It would- and have training. Was a lot of the early expansion of the the new Ritz Carlton with you at the helm? Was that a lot of taking over? What percentage do you think you took over existing hotels versus? Oh, uh, it's you know, about fifty percent. About fifty fifty. Okay. Yeah. And it, when did you finally leave the Ritz Carlton? Because I mean, such a nineteen long. years after the first one opened. Nineteen. Nineteen years, years later. Well, I, I realized I and we went in in four continents. Uh, I was traveling 250 days a year, and my wife kind of convinced me it's time to retire. And I was in, uh, nearly 65, so I retired on a Friday, and on Monday I decided I'd do it one more time. <laughs> well, so you that was re- very selfish. That was very selfish because I talked to a neighbor who retired much younger than me, and he said, hey, uh, why are you retired? He said, so I can do what I really love, playing golf. 
And I said, goodness, what do I really love? I love to play hotels. So I start one more time. I love to play hotels. And so yeah. when you when you left the Ritz, it was a $2 billion uh, operation worldwide. Including the time chain, all the stuff, yeah. Fractional ownership, let's be yeah. clear. No, no. Yeah, yeah fractional oh. ownership. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I would never yeah. buy a timeshare, but fractional ownership. Do you know... Yeah, that's what do you think about uh, the the term I, I picked up? I, what was it from Hilton? I think they're using a vacation ownership. What do you think about that? <laughs> that's that's yeah. their new timeshare. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's it. You know, <laughs> what people come up with, it's funny. Yeah. What do you think about vacation ownership? Do you like that idea, or is no, that? No, like I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't want anybody to own my vacation. <laughs> they own their vacation. You understand that Hilton suddenly owns your vacation. Oh, that's funny. I, my wife and I went to one of those uh, quite a few years back and I just, I mean, I, I couldn't help but just laugh out loud. They, you know, when you invest in vacation ownership and I'm like, come on, this is great. So you start, uh, so you got retired for a weekend and yeah. then you don't like playing golf. You like playing hotels. So you start now the, is it the Capella group or Capella hotel? Yeah. Capella hotels. Yeah. And what what was the very first well, venture? The, the, the driver of that was the tri you understand there was also a driver of it. I, I knew this new market segment was happening. It was very clear that the luxury business overall was bringing into ultra luxury and affordable luxury, if you will. And this is true in everything. Think about it. If if in the eighties he would have said to anybody, "What is a real luxury car?" They would have ninety percent would have said Mercedes. Sure. Today, a large percentage would say Bentley. Yeah, so Bentley, that, you have Rolls Royce. That is, that is kind Lexus. of the next the ultra luxury thinking that was happening overall. So I want to be in the forefront of creating that hotel that is ultra luxury. Therefore, Capella. And Capella means only 100 rooms, no, no conventions. Uh, but the, the infrastructure of a large hotel, meaning 100 rooms, but you have a, have a health club, a spa, two restaurants, a spa, everything a large hotel would have, but it is intimate at the same time with only 100 rooms where I can offer anything as long as legal, moral, and ethical. For example, in a capella, you would not have a check-in time or check-out time. Oh, no hours of that operation. so nice. And no hours of operation. Everything goes as long as legal, moral, and ethical. I, I, I call you before before you come to the hotel. We call you and say, "What can we do for you in Singapore, or wherever we are? Uh, do you do you have a diet, an allergy? Do you need any arrangements before you come here? Reservations in museum or whatever? What can we do for you?" So we are co totally concentrated on your experience in that location. We're the expert of that location. You are visiting. So we say we're the expert. So how can we make your stay exceptional for you? Everything goes. So clearly, clearly ultra luxury. How, how, did, you, how did you see that and know that you could carve out a niche as ultra luxury? To, to me, I feel like I'd be a little bit scared maybe. Thinking, yeah. okay, 100 rooms, is this really what people are going to want? Because it makes sense. A lot of ideas make sense on the surface. Clearly, it's working. Um, you haven't been retired for more than a weekend you know, in the last uh, 20 years. Uh, were, you, were you scared at all of it? Or did you just know that you, no, no, no. this is going to no, work? No. And let's it, go. Was, it, was, it was pretty clear that 
that the market was switching. And I mean, we, we, we could see that Ritz Carlton, we, we had in the first Ritz Carlton, we had one floor of club level. In the meantime, we had to add another floor, another floor, another floor, because there was a demand for the something extra, extra ex, elegant or, or, or that's not what it is really, uh, to demand for the best. That was there. And I could easily see in a, uh, take a city we are in Singapore, a city where there are 100,000 room nights. I guarantee you there is 1% would like to have something better than there is already. And that 1% is us. And so and not so a greedy we, person. I, I, I have a great, we have a great Ritz Carlton. I mean, truly a great Ritz Carlton in Singapore. We are close by with the, with the uh, Capella. The Ritz Carlton uh, charges about 500 average a night. We charge 1,000 average a night. But we give you everything. But we truly take care of you. It's an experience. By the way, uh, it, you it all have seen, you probably have seen Capella Hotel. Uh, when you, I'm sure you saw on TV when Trump met Kim in Singapore. Well, yes. that was, in, that was in, the, in the Capella Hotel. Well, talk about anything goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you had Trump and and Kim in Kim, yeah. in your hotel. That's that where was. they chose to meet. That was that's where they met. Yeah. And was it because of the uh, the? Did you bring in like obviously well, whatever? No. Well, the the uh, the the delegations were looking at every hotel and chose ours. I don't know their criteria to choosing. But it was uh, it was a capella in in Singapore. That's where they met, and it was a great experience, and of course, of course, a great piece of PR for us. Oh my gosh! I mean, you're all of a sudden yeah. you're <laughs> yeah. you're everywhere now. Yeah. What you you have? I I do want to take a minute too and talk about. Um, I've been chat, looking through your book here, Excellence Wins, and I love that someone with your experience and you've been because a lot of people are writing books now. Like anyone can write a book, but you are one of these guys that, I mean, you've seen it all. And especially when it comes to customer service, when it comes to team, when it comes to vision for so many years and for someone like you to, to write down, um, you know, it's, it's almost like, like a Holy grail of, of knowledge and ideas. Tell me about like, as a leadership book, what does it mean? Excellence wins. And what's your, What's your hope that someone would take away from this? Because ah, yeah, I have a yeah. ton of lessons from it, but what's your vision for what I would take away? I, I, I would hope that any C, CEO that reads it, and uh, by the way, I'm, I'm lucky to say I have a lot of feedback, that that CEO thinks, wow, yeah, I better reconcentrate on the market, on the customer, on the employee. Because me too, as a CEO, you get sucked into everything else in the world, to the lawsuits, to the, to the merger, to the financial reporting, to everything else. But you get sucked away from the product, from really what makes the money. Yes. And I want them to read it and say, wow, I better re-concentrate myself on, on those things. And the young person that reads it, that's why I wrote it as a story, not as a textbook. I was very, very conscious of that to write a story about how to create a great company, how to create, be a great leader to others and to yourself. How to, how to lead yourself. How, what is success done? 
the young person reads it and the end will say, well, wait a minute, I can do that. I can be a person of excellence. And I know not only is it exciting, I can do it. It is, it is pretty clear in the book that you can do it, that everybody can do it. And that's what I try to accomplish very much and hope I, I, I am accomplishing. And the feedback is great about it, by the way. I mean, truly is. I had, a, I had a CEO call me who read the book. And it's not the only one, by the way. But of course, that was extreme. He read the book and said, I have to tell you, I read the book. I, I had to read it a second time. And I decided to buy 5,000 and give it to each one of my employees. Wow, bang. And the book was out one week when that call happened. In the meantime, several other companies bought it for all their employees. It's pretty exciting what is happening. And I'm, I'm grateful. And that's what I want to do. I want to, I, I'm not looking for a business for myself there. I, I try to serve with this book. Yes. And I, I can feel that too. When, what would you tell someone who's, who's starting up or starting out right now? They have a dream of excellence, but maybe, yeah. I don't know, maybe you're 19 years old and, and man, I want to go create this yes. and I want to start off the right way. I loved your subtitle. It's a no-nonsense guide to becoming the best in a world of compromise. What would be your advice to someone young starting out in terms of excellence and how to, how to get started with that? Well, have a dream. Make sure it is a dream. Make sure it's beautiful. Decide where you want to be in 10 years from now. Give it time. Decide on it. Make, commit yourself to it. And then institute the steps that can take you there, the steps that can take you there. And don't, and don't keep focus on it. Don't focus on why it cannot be done. Don't focus on excuses. Keep on going for it. Be relentless. That means no compromise, no compromise. Once, but as you establish your dream, be sure as the lead, if you're a leader already, be absolutely sure your dream is good for all concerned. Absolutely. Agonize about it. Agonize. Is it good for the investor? Is it good for the employees? Is it good for the customer? Is it good for society? If it is good for all concerned, then your road is clear. You cannot compromise anymore. You have no more moral right to compromise it for yourself, nor for others. But the young person, my goodness, have a dream and go for it. Be, just be a little better. It's, it's, to succeed is very easy. Just be a little better. Come, come to work five minutes earlier. Stay five minutes longer. When the boss says something, don't ask by me. Say, I'm happy to. Be a little better. You're not spending hours longer. You're not doing much more. You're just doing it with the right attitude, and you will be recognized, and you will be successful. Be a little better in many small things and bring yes. the right attitude. I love that. Absolutely. Could I ask you about some obstacles you've had to overcome? I'm certain that in the founding of Ritz-Carlton and along the journey, you've run into some things that maybe when you, when you took the dream, right? You came up with the dream of having the finest hotel there is. And along that way, you probably ran into something, whether it's a building permit, <laughs> or whether it's a, a theft or who knows what it was. Um, but I'm talking about those, <laughs> obstacles, those obstacles that make it look like, you know what, maybe we can't do this after all. Have, has yeah. anything ever happened oh, yeah. made you question oh, yeah, whether it's possible or not? And there how was, did you get through it? There were a slew every day. Every day. <laughs> it wasn't fun. You're and sure. 
Anything it's, stick out in particular? Well, well, think about it. Here, here I am. We, we don't own the hotels. We manage hotels for others. And here I am in a location in a secondary city. And I have a brand to build, Ritz Carlton. And I buy, buy shampoo that costs double as much as the hotel next door pays because it's, it's much better. But the owner of that hotel owns the hotel next door also. So he comes to me, how come you pay double the, shampoo, double the price of shampoo? And attacks me. And I say, well, because it's a risk and I also get more for the for rate. Yeah, but you don't get as much as you get in San Francisco. And they're paying the same thing for the shampoo. And bang, there's a lawsuit. A lawsuit? To, oh, sure. Oh, well, of course. They're, they're, that's constant. And so I, I look first in the morning who sues you. And he said that I mismanagement. It's called mismanagement. But wait a minute, I'm buying, I'm building a brand. I have to have the same quality, et cetera, et cetera. It's all with other words. It most of the centers around money. I, I created, I, I don't know, in the book, I explained why and so on. There was a good reason. And it turned out to be a major success empowering employees, which is another buzzword today. I empowered every employee empowered every employee to make a decision up to $2,000 to keep the customer that we have. Well, I think that's, that's an important what, aspect real quick, just to, to say is um, I've, I've been harping on that for quite a long time now with people is the empowerment, but it's general. How do you make it specific? Well, I love that you put a dollar amount to it and said, listen, if there's a decision up until a certain amount, you make that call. So how did the employees take that? Did they, do they well, love the idea or, or well, of course we taught them we taught we taught them and we we certified each, each employee in problem resolution and, and at the same time how to spend the two thousand dollars and etc cetera, etc cetera. and of course the message was at the same time i trust you yes you know i'm, I'm telling you you're part of this company i'm showing you that i mean it and i trust you nobody ever gave two thousand dollars but that created lawsuits. What do you mean? You let every, every busboy give $2,000 away. That wasn't the point. It wasn't, frankly, it was an economic decision because I had made up my mind long before. I never want to lose a customer. And I knew the value of the average customer. I knew the dollar value lifelong. I knew how old they were, consummately how many more years they could travel, how many times they repeated, how much they spent. So since I thought, since the average customer potentially was a value of $200,000, I was willing to spend 2,000 to keep them. Yes. If I had to, nobody ever spent 2,000. The waiter said in the morning to the guest, how did you sleep last night? Not too well, because my faucet was dripping. In that moment, the waiter owned the faucet and said, please forgive me, I'm so sorry. Allow me to buy breakfast because I feel so bad. bad. Wow. And an, an empty and angry customer became a loyal customer instantaneously by buying a $20 breakfast. And that wasn't $2,000. So How wasn't $2,000? It probably Nobody ever that. gave $2,000. Right. But it's just the, the, the idea of I trust you with so much. With I trust you with $2,000, which in some cases I'm sure is their monthly salary, you know? No, it's true. You know, and, and I trust you with that much, which means, okay, I'm empowered. I can do this. And I also love the subtle nuance that you just mentioned in that example, which is 
the waiter doesn't say, oh, yeah, well, you know, maintenance is over there. Or, oh, even if they were really nice, I could imagine a waiter telling me, well, let me, let me call maintenance for you and let me find out something. Like, well, that would be very nice. But for the waiter to cross the context and go from food to faucet and say, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, taking the That's personal right. responsibility. Exactly. And then remedying it with something that had nothing to do with a faucet, which is brilliant. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think we could take so much from there. Um, fi- final kind of just couple questions as I as we wrap up here. Of course, thank you so much for for your generous time today. I've been really enjoying the conversation. When, first off, what, what do you see is next for you? I know you're you're speaking quite a bit. Do you see that speeding yeah, up or yeah. slowing down? No, 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 no. I, I will never retire. I, I, there's no even in the Bible it doesn't say anything about retirement. Okay, yeah, I'm not retiring. I'm I'm working. I, I'm on, on several boards, actively involved in, in companies. I'm, I'm consulting with a few companies, and I'm making speeches. And of course, the book. And the book, uh, it, it, it says it all. And it's, um, everything we talked about is thoroughly explained. And the, and the book created, and that's why I mentioned the book, the book created new speaking uh, and engagements because people are excited about it. So. I'm pretty busy speaking. I, because of the book, I just had was uh, requested to speak to the Swiss Postal Service in October. So of course, of course. So I had a lot of Postal Service and service. It's kind of interesting, but uh, that that created because of because so I'm very busy with the speaking uh, arrangements right now, consulting uh, with some nice companies and of course on a few boards. Oh, that's fabulous. So again, guys, you can get Hort's book, Excellence Wins at excellencewins.com. And what I love too, is I went on here and I just downloaded this. You also have, you can of course order the book. You can get it in bulk for your company, which is a great idea. Uh, or if you're running a seminar or something, you can get that for all the attendees. But then you also have a masterclass, which is, I think it's a, a five-part yeah. in-depth video workshop notes. And you can access right. that right there on excellencewins.com. Um, and go into the different aspects of everything we just talked about, about creating excellence. Tell me, what's your favorite part of the masterclass? Because I have not been able to watch all the videos yet. Yeah, we have, they did a great job. The, 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 the organization that did it, I worked with a group, and they, they really took snippets of teaching, which are represented in a book, but then personally explained by me in snippets of teaching. And if you buy the book, as far as I understand, if you buy a book today, you get one of them free, uh, one of those uh, on video. And so they, they did truly a great, a great job of creating those snippets, videos of teaching uh, modules for any company, which, which should be of value to any company. Learning should always be important. Oh, I, I, want all, I want all my guys to watch this as well. So guys, this is also, I mean, this is a legit masterclass. This isn't one of those like uh, webinar things. This is, you know, I can see the quality of it as well. Just like you said, yeah, it's that yeah, it's great quality. Uh, you explaining and teaching behind the scenes about these different principles of excellence wins. Yeah. And also you can, if you want to get a hold of Hortz, you can, this is so cool. He, he says he doesn't do social media. Um, not, I don't know. Not not too big on it. You got too much going on to in my age. Facebook. Come on, I don't even understand. It. <laughs> <laughs> but but you're great on a cell phone. So if you text 
79, 79, 79, and the word Horst, his first name, H-O-R-S-T. That's a great, easy way to get a hold of him if you want to book Horst to speak at one of your events, if you want to ask questions, whatever that is, text 79, 79, 79, and text the word Horst to get a hold of him. Horst, final question, and, and I'll let you get on with your day. Looking back in your life, if you could change anything along the way, and I'd like to ask this in two different segments. If you could change anything from say 2002-ish onwards for your kind of that second phase, what would you change if anything, or would you leave it all the same? Oh, wow. That's an interesting question. Yeah, there there are a few personal things, but nothing else shaking that I want to. I I truly enjoyed the the Capella experience because of this from 2000 on. uh, When we we started Capella, I truly enjoyed it. That was... That was the hospitality that I grew up in in, in Europe in a, a very refined way and being connected to that and seeing that creation, which is going on now. I, I really, I honestly believe, and I'm not selling anything here. I'm not, I sold the company. I have nothing to sell anymore. They continue though within the same vein. And I believe that in five, six years, when you talk about luxury, you will mention the name Capella. Yeah, it, it, it truly is outstanding. And it was wonderful to create because we were truly the first one in this ultra luxury piece in, in a global sense. So that's very exciting. Uh, and I, I probably, I, I insisted on starting it in, in Asia because it's easier to get money for projects like that. And the thing that I would change, I would start it in the United States. Why is that? Well, where I was closer to it, where I could stay uh, connected to it a little closer than in, in Asia. And actually, I should have, frankly, what I would do different, I would actually manage the first hotel. Uh, because it's, it's beautiful, the manager hotel, to be a host and to, to create people around from around the world, everybody interesting. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. I... I, in, in retrospect, I enjoyed more working as a waiter than anything else in a great restaurant. Because is there is guests, the is so not, not carrying food to the table, that the psychology of making people feel good with your presence. It's, it's, a, it's just a beautiful thing. And taking that in a smaller, fine hotel, it's a wonderful experience. It's, it's an art. Being a waiter in a great restaurant, or being a host in a great hotel, it's truly an art. I can certainly feel that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, well, congratulations on, uh, how do I say this? On a, on a life well lived. Certainly, certainly seems like, you know, just from our first moment talking, you're a, just a very, very happy human. Um, and I can, I can tell you, you're inspirational and I can tell that you are genuinely happy with what you've accomplished, what you've been able to share, um, the cultures and the people you've helped along the way. So, uh, Mr. Schulze, thank you so much for your time. Blessing meeting you. Guys, make sure you get Excellence Wins at excellencewins.com. It is a phenomenal read. Plus, those masterclass is unbelievable. So get those, that five-part video training from Horst. Um, thank you so much, sir. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you.